0: And here's what happens. We see these words from verses 4 through 7, and we, they're embroidered on pillows, they're printed on posters, they're even painted on walls. And so, sometimes this can make it difficult to grasp the deep truth of these words. These verses have been described as an inventory of loving relationships. They've also been described as a blueprint for a marriage or for a loving relationship. And and on the surface, at face value, this is true. It's a good way to consider these words. But wait, there's more. You see, if you're willing to take a deep breath and dive below the surface and open your eyes you're going to see a whole lot more that these verses are teaching us. So let's do that today. Let's dive beneath the surface of this passage, and let's consider a compelling word, a compelling force, and a compelling person. A word, a force, and a person. Let's pray. Father, would you open our eyes to the truth that you have for us? Open our hearts, open our ears to receive your words. We pray through the Holy Spirit, our teacher, and through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's talk about the compelling word. Do you ever get a word stuck in your brain? You know, you hear a word and and there it just sits. That word just keeps rolling through the jasmine in your mind. Just over and over and over. I mean, you look at a word so long that it starts to look weird to you. You see it on a piece of paper and you know you've spelled it correctly because you've checked it 30 times, but it still looks like you've misspelled it because you've thought about it for so long. Well, it's no surprise that today the compelling word is the word compelled. And this word has been tumbling through my head like a rock in a polisher. Just working its way over and over and over again. The word compelled means to force someone, to oblige someone to do something. Now that sounds a bit icky, doesn't it? To be forced to do something. I mean, nothing kills a good vibe of summer breeze than being forced to do something. It certainly doesn't make me feel fine. I want you to look in John chapter 19. We're going to start with a few verses. Hey, hold on just a second, Gary. Don't put the verse up, but just go ahead and turn to, to John chapter 19 so that you can be there and you can be ready when I when I show you this particular text. There's this See, there's this poignant moment in the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. A stranger is thrust onto center stage into the tragedy of crucifixion. A random traveler is compelled to help Jesus. So, the Bible narrative talks about the wrongful trial and conviction of Jesus. It talks about the unjust treatment at the hands of the Romans, where Jesus, who was delivered to the soldiers, He was mocked and He was mercilessly beaten by them. And to add insult to injury, or perhaps injury to insult, Jesus is forced to carry His own cross to the place of crucifixion. And we read about this in John chapter 19, and look at verse 16, which says, So they took Jesus. So He delivered Him over to them to be crucified, so they took Jesus, and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So that's the first thing we know. That after this uh, endured, everything that Jesus endured, he's forced to carry his own cross. But Jesus is weakened and weary. He is exhausted and expended. And he can no longer bear the weight, the load of this cross. But this disruption would not delay or derail the procession. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three gospels, they all tell us the same thing, that the Romans found a stranger in the crowd and they forced this person, they forced someone else, they compelled someone to carry the cross of Jesus. The Bible describes this person as a passerby. Someone who is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Someone who just happens to be traveling by foot. And his path and the procession to Golgotha collide. He just happened to be there in this precise exact moment. Now the story of this man who is compelled by force to carry the cross of Jesus, it's a compelling story indeed. It's compelling because his story begins as one who is compelled by force. But his story takes an incredible twist. His story takes a turn like no other. One who begins his story by being compelled by force finds himself being compelled by a force. Now, we're going to come back to his story in just a second. Can you relate in any way to the negative aspect of being compelled? I mean, when I first said this compelling word, was it a positive thing in your mind or a negative thing? When you get this idea or you're told, maybe you don't even have to get the idea, when you feel like you're being forced to do something, this aspect of being compelled, it's just, it's just not a good thing, is it, right? I mean, if I'm just talking about me, right, I feel compelled to go to the dentist. Sorry, Bob. I feel compelled to go to the dermatologist. And here's a little warning. Don't go to your dermatologist around Halloween time because they try to practice pumpkin carving skills on you. I feel compelled to have yearly colonoscopies. This is something that I'm forced to do. Listen, when you're having a colonoscopy, no one wakes up on colonoscopy day going, "woohoo," hoo you know, like you would do for opening day of baseball season or fishing or hunting season. It's something you're compelled to do. You're forced to do. So when we hear this word compel, it's, it sometimes triggers in us as a first reaction, a negative emotion. Is there any sense where this word compelled is a good thing? Can you think of any examples in your life where you've been compelled to do something and it's a good thing? So, for example, when I say, I'm compelled to go to Chick-fil-A, it's a good thing. I can't help it. The chicken, it calls to me. But when we say compelled by force, eh, not such a good thing. Compelled by force is a whole different story. Now, if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12 and just hold there for a second because I want to show you a different verse in Luke chapter 12. Now, there's a challenging verse in Luke 12 regarding the crucifixion of Jesus, okay? It's challenging because it's easy to miss and misunderstand what Jesus is saying, So in just a second, we're going to read verse 50, and in this verse, Jesus is using the metaphor of baptism to describe, to talk about His impending death on the cross. But it's the way that Jesus talks about the cross which makes this so compelling, and He uses a word that unfortunately in most English translations, it's just a different way to use a word. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You know, a lot of people, they react to the crucifixion narrative, they react to the crucifixion story as something that Jesus was forced to do, that He had no choice that, that how, how mean could God be that He would force His own Son to do this? And so it's really unfortunate that in, in our English Bibles that that word distress here, because you know what? That word distress is the same Greek word for the word compelled. But it's not being used in a negative sense. It's being used in a positive sense. It, what Jesus is saying here is, my whole goal in this moment is to get to the cross, and, and, and I will be uneasy, I will not be well until I get to that point and accomplish what the Father and I have decided to do to redeem humanity. It's almost like using the word anxious in the wrong way, right? When somebody says, boy, I'm really anxious to see you guys. Wait, do you want to see us, or do you not want to see us? And so when Jesus says this word distressed, he's actually using this word compelled. And what he's trying to communicate is that there is something pushing him forward. There is something compelling him to move to the cross. Jesus is focused on this moment of the cross for his last words to be It's finished. Redemption is secured. And so Jesus is not being compelled by force here. He's being compelled by a force. Now when the Apostle Paul first arrives in the city of Corinth, he spends all of his time in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks that Jesus was the Christ. You can read about this in Acts chapter 18. In fact, in Acts chapter 18 and verse 5, the Bible says that Paul was occupied with the Word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. It doesn't mean he was busy. It doesn't mean, oh man, I got things to do, leave me alone, daddy's got to go to work. That word occupied, it's the same Greek word compelled. The Bible is trying to tell us that Paul is spending every waking moment, he's spending every time he has in the synagogue trying to convince Jews and Greeks that Jesus was the Christ. He's doing that because he's compelled to do this. Was it by force? Is he being coerced? You see, something is compelling Paul that he would risk his reputation and risk his life. Have you ever considered that Paul faces the same risk that Jesus faced? That Paul faces the same mindset that Jesus faced. He faces the same establishment that Jesus faced. Like Jesus, Paul was opposed. Like Jesus, Paul was reviled. Like Jesus, Paul was persecuted. Like Jesus, Paul was beaten. How does it sounding so far to be like Jesus? And ultimately, like Jesus, Paul is executed. executed. Listen, there's something moving, Paul. There's something compelling him to risk his life and to risk his reputation. The Apostle Paul was convinced of several things. Here's just three. One, that he was the worst of sinners. Two, that Jesus Christ saves the worst of sinners. And three, that only the gospel, only the power of God can save us and transform us. Paul was convinced of the love of God, that it was, it was such the ultimate source of joy and security that he was willing to risk everything. This, the love of God, is what's compelling him. Paul is so convinced that the only way that you're going to see supernatural transformation in your life is through the love of God. It's the only way. It's the only way that your heart is going to be changed through the love of God. He is so convinced that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells us his motivation. If you want to look in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That word controls... You guessed it. It's the same word. It's the same Greek word, compels. Don't you see what he's saying? He says, it's the love of Christ that is compelling us. It's the love of Christ that is pushing us forward into these awkward and uncomfortable situations. It's the love of Christ that is pushing us to be at risk in order to get the gospel message delivered to those who need to hear it. Paul is so convinced of the transforming power of the love of God given to us through Jesus Christ, he's willing to stake his life on it. So there's this really interesting passage. It's it's just a few verses in Second Timothy chapter one and and one of the he's talking to Timothy about the gospel. And and if you have a chance, go home this afternoon and read second Timothy one eight through twelve. Because in it, here he talks the same theme. We're saved by the grace of God. We're transformed by the grace of God. It's the love of God poured out on all of us that makes every single difference in the world. And this is probably a phrase that you're used to hearing from Paul, where he says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed that it's his work, not mine. He says, I'm not ashamed, for I know who I have believed, and I am convinced that He will keep me, He will guard me until that day with what has been entrusted to me. So, to the gifted church in Corinth, Paul says, love must compel you. Love must be the motivation for the public exercise of your gifts, or you're just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. To the troubled church in Corinth, Paul says, love is the only motive, it's the only force which can transform your heart. So, yes, verses 4 through 7 in many ways are an inventory of loving relationships. They can be viewed as a blueprint for loving relationships, but it's not a checklist, it's not a list of moral obligations. This is not one of these lists that you look at and say, okay, here's the list. Here's what I have to do. I'm going to check it once or twice because it's the only way that I can move myself from naughty to nice. If you see these words as a checklist of what you must do, one of two things are going to happen. The first is you're going to fail, you're going to fail. You're going to fail if you see this as something that you have to do by your own strength, by your own power, by your own willpower, by your own might. And this failure, this burden, this demand will crush you. (laughs) I've said this before. There's something worse. You could succeed. You could do it. You could say, I'm going to do all of this, and you look at this as a checklist, and, you know, boom, 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 boom. And what happens is you become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal because you see it as something that has to be done in your effort, in your strength. Keeping a checklist of moral obligations will not transform your heart. It will always damage it. Do you notice that these verses do not say, you should be patient and kind? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, you should not envy or boast. The Apostle Paul is not saying to the church in Corinth, I want you to be this way. Try so very hard to be this way or to not be this way. These words are not just a picture of Paul wants the church in Corinth to be. These words are a portrait of of what the church in Corinth will be if they allow love to compel them. Love is. Love is. What Paul is saying, and this is the best message that we miss, that love is a person. It's a person. Love is a power. It's a a force that changes you. He's trying to get them to fall in love with the one who is love. Paul is trying to get them to see that ultimately only the love of God will change them because love is a person. All right, you want to hear something spectacular? One of my favorite verses, one of my favorite words. You want to hear something beautiful in a dramatic way? Puppies kissing babies. See, that's something beautiful in a dramatic way. So I need to work on the delivery on that one a little bit. I'm going to scratch that one out for next time. do Do you remember the man who was compelled to carry the cross of Jesus? So here's a man who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Here's a man who picked the wrong day to come into the city. He's from out of town, and he finds himself stuck in a traffic jam. In, in a, it defines the word disruption. Roman soldiers picked him at random. They seized him and they forced him to carry the cross of Jesus. So he was compelled by force to carry the cross of Jesus to the place of crucifixion. But this isn't the spectacular thing. No. This isn't the remarkable thing. Something else happened to this man on this day. Something else compelled him to stay and to watch and to believe in Jesus. The Bible tells us something very remarkable about this man. The Bible tells us his name and where he's from. His name is Simon. And he's from the, Northern Afri- the North Africa Greek city of Cyrene. And it's not like he suddenly finds himself on a game show. Simon of Cyrene, come on down. That's not what's happening here because, see, these accounts are being written years later. Years later. The Gospel of Mark even tells us the name of his children. They're named Alexander. Alexander. And Rufus, don't you see? He's compelled by force to carry the cross of Jesus. But he's compelled by a different force, by love to believe in Jesus. He spends a short amount of time with Jesus, but it's long enough to believe in Him. It's long enough to be compelled by love to follow Him, so much so that the early church knows who he is, and they know his kids. A random stranger picked out of a crowd, compelled to do something he does not want to do, and becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. You know what? We get wrapped up in trying to change others and hoping others will change, and we can't even change our own hearts. We just can't. We can't. The only way we're going to change is by spending time with Jesus. It's the only way. We have to be compelled by the beauty of His holiness, by the holiness of His beauty. And so, to a gifted and troubled church, Paul emphasizes again and again and again the centrality of the cross He says the gospel is about God's work of reconciling us through Jesus Christ and through the cross. The cross is the place where the God who becomes flesh, the God who is with us, Emmanuel, is the God who saves us. And so in the cross, at the cross, in these words of 1 Corinthians 13, talking about Jesus, we meet Him in our deepest need. Paul says, love bears all things. And on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. And on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Paul says, "Love always hopes," and on the cross, Jesus turns to the thief who had defended him and says, "Today you will be with me in paradise." Paul says, "Love perseveres," and on the cross, Jesus says, "It's finished. It's finished. I made it to the end. I made it to the end. Redemption has been secured for all." Jesus is the ultimate definition and example of love is. But one more thing. You have to see Him more as an example just to imitate. See, this go-and-do-likewise approach does so much damage to our hearts. It's because the go-and-do-likewise approach always puts the ball in our court, what we have to do. By faith, we respond to God through Jesus. By faith, we accept the work of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus as our own. But you'll always be frustrated and disappointed if you just stop right there. You see, you have to refuse a surface, superficial relationship with Jesus. You have to go deeper. That He doesn't just want to save you, He wants to shape you. And so you need to fall madly in love with Jesus. You need to let His love melt your heart. You have to see verses 4 through 7 as Jesus not only doing this for you, but Jesus being this for you. And eventually if you can see Jesus doing this for you and being this for you, if you can fall madly in love with Him, if you can say there is no time better spent than the time I'm spending with Jesus, eventually His love will be reproduced in you. It's the only way to change your heart. Oh Lord, You're beautiful. Your face is is all I seek. And when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds in me. Let's pray. Father, would you do that? Would you just drive out of our head, out of our heart, this this bent we have to save ourselves, to righteousness ourselves? Holy Spirit, would you just, would you work in our heart, would you convict us to spend time with Jesus, to spend time in deeper intimacy with Him so that His love is being reproduced supernaturally in us. Father, would you do this work in our heart, hear our hearts crying out to you. By faith we accept your love, by faith we accept your salvation, by faith we give ourselves to be transformed. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and as we share in this song, the elders will be up front and in the breaks. And if you want to respond today to the love of God expressed to us through Jesus Christ, please do so as we sing.